This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. This episode was different for a bunch of reasons. For one thing, my guest this week, 22-year veteran of the NYPD, very accomplished singer and actor, Mike Devine, actually came out to Cornwall, sat down with me, and we did this episode face-to-face, which is always a blast. Um, you know, With a life like Mike's, it was going to be a conversation that wasn't going to suck to begin with, but to be able to sit down face-to-face and really have a proper conversation um, was just an absolute pleasure. I'm, you know, was, I was incredibly impressed with Mike's life, just the bullet points on his resume. But sitting face to face with him, just what a great, genuine dude. Uh, we talk about a lot in this show, as you would expect, uh, this episode, as you would expect. Um, I mean, we cover 9 11 in depth. We talk about depression, you know, PTS. Um, we talk about the bonds that are made both on the civilian side and the mill military law enforcement side uh, and how those differ or can differ. Um, uh, We talk about, you know, obviously Mike's own path, uh, being in a law enforcement family, pivoting to theater, but then pivoting back into law enforcement and leaving a lot of money on the table to do so. Um, And then of course, pivoting back into showbiz uh, where Mike has now released his second I think the word he, the phrase he used was pop opera um, album. And Mike has, you know, been a very accomplished actor um, and continues to get more and more recognition, especially now that he's left the NYPD and has more time that he can uh, devote to this. But, you know, he's worked with Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, uh, Michael Pena, Kevin Spacey, Nicole Kidman. He's been in a lot of big projects, both in TV and film. So seeing him, kind of working more and more and more, not right now, obviously with the writer's strike. Um, but, uh, you know, seeing, seeing how his stars ascended 
um, is exciting and very, very cool. Um, I should mention something about the writer's strike. So because of the writer's strike, there's a couple of weird kind of things that the writer's guild um, and sag after the actors unions uh, ask is that you not mention shows by name or projects by name so that they don't get publicity. I, I think it's kind of one of those, I mean, in my personal estimation, I, I don't see that that does, that really matters. And that is, seems always seemed very um, trifling and petty uh, to make a stand on, on that little point, but I get it. There's, it's part of a bigger fight. And so, um, so Mike and I kind of elliptically mention you know, different shows. And I think I referenced this in the interview itself, but anyway, um, so there's that. Uh, so if you're, if, if it's like, dude, why don't you guys just say the name of the movie or the TV show? That's why we're not saying it. Um, so there you go. All in all, uh, this very, what's the best word? Um, this epic journey of a conversation that Mike and I went on really led us to do something we haven't done before, which is break this interview into two parts. Um, we've had two-part interviews before. Um, we've had <laughs> two-part interviews that we're still trying to work out. Mike Fay, I'm thinking of you because still got to get back down to Pennsylvania and talk to him. Speaking of face-to-face interviews that go on really long and, and deserve even more time. Um, but uh, but in this case, this was an after-the-fact decision that I made uh, because I think it just deserved, we deserve to air out each piece separately. I didn't divide these episodes in half um, for length. I kind of divided them to half based off of the flow of the conversation. So this week, you guys are getting kind of the shorter version, and next week uh, will be a longer version. But uh, So this is part one. And it's a great introduction to Mike and to kind of some of the nuances of and setting up the kind of the stage, I guess, for where his life was about to go. So we take him, gosh, I can't remember now. Do we take him to 9-11? I think we take him up to 9-11. I really can't remember. and I probably should. Anyway, point being, guys, it's a great intro to Mike and his work. And next week, you'll get to hear all the rest of it. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. And this is Mike Devine's profile in Havoc. I guess this is it. Welcome to the show, Mike. Well, thank you. Let's, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and no, seriously, thank you. Thank you very much. Dude, I, no, thank you. Are you kidding? You came all the way out here, man. This is awesome. It's such a privilege to be able to talk in person. I freaking love it. The privilege is mine, and your your space is incredible. And the potential, I see some uh, lots of potential. So we should tell people. I mean, we, we've just been on you know, a good, what, 30, 45-minute little jaunt around yes. the, the, the vet rep properties, which makes us sound much more lavish than we are. Um, but yeah, man, no, it's great to show you that. Uh, and so anybody else that wants to come on the show in person... Come on out here. You get the nickel tour and you get to see everything. Hopefully I didn't just um, reveal a huge secret that you, you had didn't. up here. Okay. No, you totally did not. No, God knows because everybody better be coming out here when this thing opens in April. So it's yeah. all right. Oh, Cat's no, out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. Um, all right. So listen, so I'm t- I was actually thinking about how I was going to promote this, this episode. 
And part of me feels like I should just put your music on and then show pictures of you in uniform and just let that be it. I'm not even going to say anything. I just feel like that would raise enough questions, whet everyone's appetite enough. Um, let me just start with the first thing that crossed my mind. What kind of response did you get on the job to being kind of an artist at heart, an actor, a musician, a singer? How, what kind of, how did your family feel about it? Because they're a family of cops. How did the profession feel about it? It, it was definitely a bit of an identity crisis because I literally joined the NYPD from the tour of Miss Saigon. Now, is that a route that most people take in their life? Such a cliche. <laughs> Such a cliche. Oh, that again. Yeah. Wait, so who were you on tour with? So you're touring Miss Saigon, but with who? For who? This actually, I, I, this is a whole detour I won't even get into, but I was in management for a while. I was just the assistant company manager of the, the second national tour of Miss Saigon. Um, it was it was Cameron McIntosh's production. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, and it was wow. incredible. And I actually, I was playing all the duh towns, like Detroit, Des Moines, Duluth. And I thought, you know, I've accomplished a lot. And I was really proud of those things. Um, but I woke up in Des Moines and I said, I'm 26. There's something I need to do. And I want to just try this. Let me give it, let me give it till I'm 30. And I actually, uh, I took about a hundred thousand dollar pay cut and I left the show prior to them going to Honolulu for six months. And, uh, I, I moved back to New York with the hope I was going to get hired by the NYPD because it wasn't uh, a guarantee at the time. So the four year period was for to do police stuff. Is that what that was? I said, I want to try this. And if I hate it or, you know, if, if it's as un, if it's unfulfilling, um, then I can then hopefully Miss Saigon will still be running or I can continue that, um, uh, you know, detour I was taking. I, I, I originally was, I studied acting and then a friend of mine got me a job working in management, just answering phones, um, for, uh, for Cameron McIntosh who produced, produced Lame as Rob and Phantom and Miss Saigon. And, and after a few years of answering phones, they were like, do you want to start learning management? I'm like, well, it's a little removed from acting, but yeah, let's, that would be great. So I got into company management and eventually they, they sent me out on tour, but it, I, I still had it in, in the back of my mind that it would have been great to be a cop. I was an auxiliary, you know, just a volunteer. Yeah, sure. Um, and I was, in fact, I, I, uh, they sent me out on tour and I had to come back to graduate my, uh, auxiliary training. So I, I, so unlike, like I know LAPD, you go through the same academy if you're LAPD reserve, but then, uh, but you can break it up onto weekends, but you have to go through the exact same curriculum and then you have all the police powers, everything, but only two days a week. But I know NYPD auxiliary you don't even carry a weapon, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very different. It's, it's mainly yeah. a uniform presence. Yeah, um, you're the eyes and ears. You serve as a witness, but okay. it's it's so that people can see a cop on the corner. But you have very little power. Um, and okay, so yeah, I I was trying to hold off doing what I always do, which is starting at the very beginning. Mm. So then I got ADD and just started jumping around. Let's actually start at the beginning. Okay. Who were you born to? You were born to a family of cops, right? Yeah, my father was a drug enforcement agent. And like for DEA? For the DEA, yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, my grandfather was a detective in the NYPD. And then his brother, my father's uncle, was also a detective in the NYPD. Okay. Um, but 
it never interested me. I, I, you know, it was okay, but I never thought I'd become a cop. My brother, however, wanted to be a cop from like birth. So when you were a little kid and it's Halloween, what were you dressing up as? I mean, (laughs) did you play cops and robbers? Like what Hmm. what kind of kid were you then? I was probably dressing up as Batman, which is really doesn't answer the question because it's very theatrical, but yet there's a little law (laughs) enforcement in Batman. So it's true. It is true. But that's it. But that actually makes a lot of sense. I th- and that's why I think a lot more people that are in the Mill Leo space hmm. are there is a secret hankering for artistry because we all want to be poet laureates hmm. of some part of that very kinetic experience. Right. Right? There there, there yeah. is something about us that on a primal level that we go, I want to do badass shit and then I want to be able to talk <laughs> about it and or at least have borne witness to it if I'm not the one actually doing it, but at least be able to bear witness to it firsthand experience. And then exploit that somehow artistically and go, hey, guys, do you see this? Isn't this cool? And this is actually how this happens. And this is actually what this looks like. Right? Is there a little part of you that's kind of like that? Or am I just talking about myself? No. In fact, I like that. Because there is always a part of me that sees things from the outside in. You know, there's a little bit of a a detached observer. Yeah. Um, Which which can be terrible, but I do see things from the outside in. And even when we get into the law enforcement later, I was able to, to see things from a different perspective. And I think sometimes I really wish I, I didn't detach and I could really get <laughs> involved and, and enjoy a conversation yeah. rather than, uh, you know, um, observing it. But um, you're right. I did recognize things like that at a, at a young age. So I just, I, I took us off track. So as a kid, I mean, were you, what were you into then? Were you drawn to singing? Were you drawn to acting? What were you Not drawn really. to? Not really. I just did normal kid stuff. I did a little little league. Okay. And, and uh, but I did I did like the the school play. I was always in in, in school play. Okay. Uh, you can go back to Sister Renee at St. Philip's Catholic School in Clifton, New Jersey, who Clifton, introduced Jersey. me okay. to uh, the eighth grade production of Oklahoma. That was the first one. Yeah. Who were you in Oklahoma? I was Judd. Really? Yeah. Um. So I think. And I thought this was really cool. And then she had a summer program. She's like, "You want you were great here. Let's let's do the summer program." So then then I I uh, here's another uh, little little more foreshadowing. Uh, I was Officer Krupke in their summer production of West Side Story, and I really I started to really love that. And being in New Jersey, just a bus ride away from Broadway, I was able to go in and out. So even in high school, we started seeing some Broadway shows, and I was I was really kind of blown away, especially by Les Miserables. I thought. I thought it was incredible, and I, that kind of kind of sealed the deal for me. Um, and where did the where did the inspiration to actually go see was this something your family had always done with or without you, or were you an instigator in kind of going, hey, can we go check out a show on Broadway? Like, where did that come from? It, to be honest, I remember seeing a 2020 story on Les Miserables, and I was like, this is really cool. This looks great. And we bought tickets. Just some friends of mine, actually, from that same theater group. Wow. That did West Side Stories. This wow. was so we're eighty-seven around. Um, so I remember we bought tickets in probably March, and we went and saw it in November because it was so big at the time. And, right. Um, yeah. And I was really blown away by it, and and couple that with the fact that you know, I really couldn't catch a football. <laughs> that's a that's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Because I wonder about that. Um, what does drive kids? To theater, you hope it's the positive, 
you wonder <laughs> if it's the negative. It's, like I would have played football, but I wasn't that good. So yeah. this is going to be the next best way to get applause. I, I don't. Is that too glib? Is there? I wasn't necessarily looking for applause because I've always and still am very shy. Uh, I'm an extroverted introvert, so mm-hmm. I, it wasn't. Cha- well. I was also a bit of a nerd in high school, and I went to an all-boys school. I went to Seton Hall Prep in West Orange, and Mm. it was very sports-oriented. So I was definitely not being able to catch that football or the baseball or the basketball. I was, yeah, and I was a fat kid, so that was probably um, part of it. And I could, even as the... Actually, the the fact it always made the football team, but, but right? I, I was gonna say, yeah, a line, yeah. But I, but I didn't, and uh, so I really felt like an outcast. And then, did that really did that really hit you when you didn't make the teams? Was that like actually a pivotal moment? It it kind of did. Although I wouldn't say I was ever looking for applause, but I was looking for acceptance. You know, and and uh, I remember uh, high school was just it, it was. Just being a fat kid alone, it was it was pretty awful. But being a mm. the fat kid in an all boys school, you know, which was very sports driven, that, that yeah, that, it 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 did suck in that way. So I I don't and, and I was so socially awkward. Huh. It was really terrible. So um, were you hoping that sports would kind of overcome that and kind of be your bridge over any? Like, hey, I, yeah. I might be awkward, but remember, I'm fucking badass out there, and I'm a great <laughs> middle linebacker. Or something, well, you know? yeah, and I wish I put into it. I wish I realized at the time that you get out of it what you put into it. So mm. I really wasn't willing to do the work. Or, um, mm. And uh, this takes us back a bit. My my, I never really had a dad that would could teach me basketball and and football and baseball. My my father, the drug enforcement agent, was he was shot when I was. One, he was, uh, he and his partner were doing a buy and bust in, uh, in New York and his partner was killed on the, on the, on the scene. It was, uh, it was a drug deal that turned into a robbery. So the, uh, um, the, the drug dealers, uh, turned the guns on them and, and shot my father's partner, killed him. And then my father was shot and, uh, paralyzed from the waist down. Fuck. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it, 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 it did suck, you know, but I was yeah. way too young to understand what was going on. And for you, I mean, one, it was, must one. have been like normal that your dad was just paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah, like I don't ever remember him walking, right? <clears throat> you know, and, and, uh, so uh, actually it's interesting. I'm, I'm putting it, I probably thought of it at the time and I really, yeah, my, my, I was, uh, my uncle tried to teach me basketball, but, uh, yeah, my father was in and out of hospitals for the next 10 years and he, he died in 82 from the complications from the shooting. So I, uh, yeah, I didn't, that, that might've been another reason. Did you have, did the community, did the Leo community kind of come around and try to fill the gaps? Was there any sense of like, you know, Hey, let's take care of the family a little. Absolutely. Very, very much. In fact, my mom is still, those are who are still around actually. In fact, one of my dad's partners was Howard Safer. Um, who just passed away uh, like a week ago. Um, he was, uh, he eventually became uh, New York City Police Commissioner. Yeah, yeah. Right around the time I was coming on the job. Wow. <laughs> but that's, that's a whole other wow. story. But so I remember I, I, I reached out to his family saying he really took care of my, my mom and, and my brother and me all the years afterwards. So my dad's partners, his, all of his 
um, colleagues at the time. In fact, even at my police academy graduation, Howard Safer spoke about him, at the, which was which was really nice. What did it, I mean? I can only imagine. I mean, what what did that mean for you, growing up? I mean, again, you didn't know your dad able-bodied, you really ever in your life. But was there a lingering, not to double back on the Batman thing, but you know. Bruce Wayne sees his dad get shot and becomes Batman, right? Mm. I mean, was there some sense for you of like right and wrong, good and evil? Like, hey, some motherfuckers are out there that did some bad shit. And that's kind of, I, I, what kind of emotional weight was that? Or were, was your brother kind of doing that? And you were like, I'm just trying to find my own way here. And that's <laughs> kind of like backstory, but it's not my front burner motivating factor, yeah. you know? It. It did two things that I'm probably at least consciously aware of. It, it showed me from a very young age that law enforcement is about sacrifice and it's about the good and it's about putting others before yourself. So that's what I was, that's what I learned to believe from a very young age. So wow. I'm very <clears throat> hardwired to, to still see the good in law enforcement, you know, despite, yeah. uh, you know, recent years. And then I think it's possible looking back that going in the opposite direction could have been by design as well, at least subconscious design. Um, and I went as far away from it as I could. And then I think I always kind of kidded my, my molecular chemistry pulled me back in that direction. Um, so it wasn't conscious. I wasn't actually saying, you know, I want to go out and slay the bad guys. And, and yeah. uh, But I did feel a deeper calling to that, that type of service. I really felt that, you know, theater was great. And I was, like I said, I fulfilled a lot of goals very early on. And, uh, but it was unfulfilling. You know, I, I, there was there was something there that I just I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, be on the corner when the old lady was walking home, you know, and and she knows that yeah. she's okay to get yeah. home tonight, and I wanted to be that guardian angel, and you know, I went into it for, you know, very altruistic reasons. I I I definitely saw the benevolence, and that's what I chased. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was it was definitely a, a calling that I couldn't that I couldn't ignore. Whether it's it's you know uh, holding up the sword, I I don't know. What was your What was your life like with your dad? What were the conversations like? Was he resentful about no his service, or what did he impart to you? You know, I looking back, especially. I can now see it from the perspective of the age that I was, the age I, I've reached the age he was shot at 29. So I can see it from that perspective. He died at 39. I can see wow. it from that perspective being 50. Um, I, I see, uh, someone who's trying to be a dad while faced with these incredible obstacles, he, like I said, he was in and out of the hospital for months on end. But I do, I can picture a time where he was, you know, would wheel in his wheelchair to my room and help me hang up my pants. And he's saying, this is how you hang up your pants. This is where the crease goes. And to this day, I can't hang up a pair of pants without looking for the crease to put it on the hanger properly. 
So I think he was doing the best he could to be a father despite those circumstances. And my mother, too, because the care it took yeah. to provide for him. Um, it, it was, was, she, was she doing, like, at-home nursing, basically, for yeah. him? Fuck. Yeah. So she... Oh, Jesus. They, they had very little time to... They did the best that they could, but, you know, raising two boys during that period was, was extremely difficult. And I didn't see it at the time. I was probably, yeah. I wish I had the maturity at that age to, to yeah. see it, but I, I didn't. But again, looking back, especially from, from an adult perspective, I, I, I really feel for them. You know, I feel for all of us. Of course. Of course. Kind of a weird question. When did you find out that he had been shot like at what age did they kind of say hey you know your dad actually wasn't always like this and something happened right do you remember being told that do you remember your reaction to that actually i don't huh. i don't remember someone telling me um no i i my brother might he was two years older at the time he might in fact that might be something i can ask my mom luckily my mom's uh, turning 83 this year and in fantastic shape and health Good for her wow. yeah so every That's now awesome. and then we'll 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 talk about it and some i still sometimes hate to talk about it because i know it Listen, but i think of all course. of us yeah. i mean with my i don't mind talking about it here but like with my mom you know sometimes you know it, it it brings up some some negative feelings and i think even my brothers he's just got a tattoo with my dad's um shield number so and and i know he's he was also a He's a veteran from the the Marines and, and the and the Persian Gulf, and I know he's he's struggled with with uh, many things, and and I think I don't know. I seeing the tattoo was interesting to me because I, I thought, you know, maybe we want to let sleeping dogs lie, in in, in in some ways, but you felt like he was resurrecting some well, stuff. Um, I don't know. Actually, he might be good to have on as well. But mm. I think it might have been a. Um, it seems ironic with a tattoo, but there's a, a level of closure with it too, because I know he has been working on 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 finding closure with with certain things as well. Even as old as we are, yeah, it's still affecting our our, our adult life, and um, you know, it, in many ways, I'm. I don't know, especially hearing his colleagues are passing away now. Uh, you know, Howard Safer was, I think, 82. So I'm thinking he's now at the age where he, they'd be passing away naturally. I'm like thinking about all those years. That's yeah. over 40 years we could yeah. have had. You know, and I don't, I don't have a lot of anger toward the, the drug dealers that did it. It wasn't personal. What do you hate? What do you resent about it? If anything, well, I, I look at what was what was stolen all those years, and you know everyone is so protective of their own mother. Yeah, um, I'm mad at what they took from my mother. Mm. You know, and she was, you know, they were high school sweethearts. Is her only boyfriend, and wow. to have him shot at. She was thirty. He was twenty nine. You know, and, and you know, no one wants to think of their mother's love life. No, right, right, but, right. Um, but at the same time, yeah, she's never gone on a, on a date. She's never remarried. You know, that's her. Her husband at twenty nine is paralyzed from the waist down. You know, and and uh, 
um, even for you know a twenty nine year old man to uh, to give up his love life at that, at that time. You know, and I know they wanted a third child, and that that never happened. So I think, to go back to your question, there's, it's, it's not a boiling up anger. It's just something that that simmers a little bit. You know, it's 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 what they took basically from my mom, from my father, from my brother. I don't often think of me in that in that sense. Uh, I, I guess, but I am mad at what what they took from me. It seems strange because, I mean, in, in, now that I know you so incredibly well after, you know, an hour and 15 minutes or whatever. <laughs> I know you got more but, than most. But, well, no, but I mean, it's, it's uh, you don't seem like someone that's seething with anger. No. You don't seem like an angry person. So I'm, and I'm not trying to play amateur psychiatrist. I'm just curious because I'm mapping that onto how I would feel. I'm just wondering, yeah, what that effect is like, or is it because it, you were so young that it's just, that was normal? So it didn't kind of leave an imprint because it was just like, well, this is what normal is. I've got a dad that's paralyzed and a mom that's working her butt off to take care of him. And so you're raised with kind of just a different set of expectations than other folks because it, or or was there a way that there was, was there an emotional outlet or some emotional residue? You know, how did you, yeah. What, how, what was your coping mechanism or did you not need one because that was normal to you? There was a level of it being normal to me, um, but I also I think I internalized a lot of it because um, I remember when he, when he did pass away and I was eleven, um, everyone said you know it's okay to cry because I I wasn't crying and people were starting to get a little uh. concerned. Mike Mike's not crying, and I just I just became a zombie. You know, it's, I think it's just overwhelming for a kid of that age. Yeah, and I did actually I did I did cry, but I. Uh, I guess, you know, I think I was still in shock. I think I cried probably a few weeks afterward, but I remember being in shock. But it 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 was it's just been a low simmer my whole life. But you're right, there's definitely an element of it having been normal. Um, but also, like I was saying, it it was progressive. And I remember real making these realizations throughout my life, and then the anger would return. Like, um, you know, on, on, uh, he, he would, he should have been at my wedding here and he should have oh, been at my graduate. Imagine him at my police graduation and, uh, you know, he should have been here and those, those are those things, but it was more, it's uh, more sadness than anger, I guess. Cause I, I, c- I couldn't process anger or any of those emotions as such a young kid. So it, it, yeah. it, it all came up throughout the years. It's interesting because when you talked about being in school and being driven by sports and then finding theater, I'm trying to think of how that relates to your family life and to what that childhood had been like. Because you might have been the next mean Joe Green, you know, just complete savage if you'd been filled with resentment and anger over it, but that wasn't the experience you had. My brother did. And your brother did. He did, yeah. He had the punching bag in the basement, definitely. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's because he was older and because he had seen a little bit more of your dad and kind of yeah. lived through that a little more? And also it could just be our personalities, but yeah, I do, I do think so. Even just the two years older could have been that level of maturity that I lacked. Um, I'm going to jump ahead just for one quick question, but when you did get in the police force and you did have 
use of force incidents, especially non-deadly force, you know, but just going hands-on with somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you ever get any sort of catharsis out of that? Was there ever a sense? And, and I'm not saying no. like you took a telephone book to somebody, but I'm saying, was there ever a sense of like, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm standing <laughs> in similar ground to where my dad is, and I kind of just made a stand against the same type of entities that my dad faced. Was there ever that? Not really. Okay. It, it, it was... It was rewarding to to arrest someone and take someone off the street who was definitely a threat to the community. Um, but luckily, things things never got that that physical. Okay. Um, but I really I was very black and white um, in terms of uh, what's what's right and what's wrong. And it took uh, several years being on the job. There's also the the zealousness of being a rookie. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, it, I did, I did mellow out throughout the years, but I, there was really no, no, no satisfaction in that. No. In fact, I, I, I often felt guilty because, you know, you, uh, you, you, you arrest someone for doing something and then you bring them in, you start to talk to them and you're like, oh, okay. You know, but you know, it, it is what it is. But, um, you know, I, I, I was pretty black and white. It's, I, and I always one was one to say, I don't make the laws. I just enforce them, you know, yeah. but if I, I might've written some different laws, but I, you know, I was, let's go back to, um, your childhood to, to how you saw your life deving out when you got into high school, what did you think you were going to do? Did you start to have ambitions? Did you start to go, Hey, I think I know what kind of person I'm going to be. Or did your mom have indications? Was she like, Mike, you should think about this. Like, what were the conversations? What were the aspirations that you had? Having you failed miserably at sports, I did. I, I, as I was saying, I found a little bit of solace in in our theater group and in music. I really, I liked music, although I all the the instruments I took, I, I failed miserably at that too. So I kind of was like, I, it seems like okay, it's going to be acting. Um. And, uh, I remember even like the, the bus was miserable. Um, and I, 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 uh, I remember I found the Les Rob original London cast album and I would just kind of sit and, and listen to that. Um, so just to tune everything else, out. just to tune everything out. Was it bullying? Was it getting picked on or what was it? No, nah, Maybe, maybe in early on, it's just, it was, I, I felt so, I wish I could tell young Michael, just relax, you know, have fun mm. with them. Not everything is so serious. Um, and I just, I, I, every time I would speak, it was just like, every, you know, the record would skip and everyone would like, what? Okay, whatever. Um, okay, oh, ne- never mind. Um, so yeah, I, I got very quiet. Um, it wasn't bullying per se, but it was just, uh, with everybody, and there were there were a few groups I really felt like I fit in with. Your square peg in a round hole. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can totally relate to that feeling where you talk and like the record skips. That makes total <laughs> sense. I've definitely been in rooms like that where I'm like, I'm just going to shut the fuck up. Yeah. 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 And I was perhaps, I was seeing that that theater nerd, you know, where we later all found each other. Yeah. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to go sit over here and put these, put my Walkman on and... Let's stay with the Walkman for a second. What exactly about Les Mis hit you on such a gut level? Because that truly seems like that was a pivotal moment in your life. And it's interesting because it's it's three hours of sad music. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I I think it's the maybe it's the Irishman in me, but I I've always loved sad music. Yeah. Um yeah. and and I th- and it was and, and it was just one big ballad after another. And I was also really blown away by the quality of voices because they're most of them especially early on were very they were trained operatically, although I didn't mm-hmm. have the sense to understand that, but they were trained operatically, but they were singing more in a, in this pop opera right. style which was new to me. You know, and I, I never really liked the Rodgers and some of the Rodgers and Hammerstein and the happy stuff. And I didn't really click with sound of music or anything like that, Mm. but, um, something about this and it was just, it was the dark style of it. It was, it was ingenious, ingeniously staged. Um, in fact, we were talking earlier. I don't want to talk about shed light on a conversation that no one knows about, but but just you were talking about a, a theatrical device where you just added interesting sound effects. Oh right, yeah. And sound effects, who cares? It's it's right. it's stupid. It's done everywhere. Right. But when you do it smartly and ingeniously, um, it's it's it, it's a it's kind of a wow moment. And I think Les Miserables filled as powerful as it was with the revolving. I don't know if you saw the original. Yeah, yeah. the revolving stage and the barricade, and yeah. it was so over the top, but there was just smartly staged, like when Javert jumps off the bridge. Like, how how would people stage that? I don't know, but they were so smart, they had the bridge fly up behind. He's, he's, he's standing on the stage, and the bridge is on the stage, and he takes a leap, and the bridge goes up behind him, and he pretends he's falling. And it could be so silly and eye-rolling, but it was so smartly done, and I was just blown away by how smart it was at the same time. And they could have used props and there's there a lot oh, of... Totally, yeah. Yeah, there That's was... a very sophisticated take on Les Mis, though, especially for... I mean, you saw that in 87, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a really sophisticated... Because to, to, you're, you're turned on by the music, but you're also noticing all the production aspects yeah. as well. I mean, that's incredible. That's rare, I think. That's pretty precocious for a kid to pick that up. And... I just remember it being cool. I'm like, this is really cool. The revolving stage. I mean, you can have somebody walking on the revolve and it's as if he's walking yeah. down the street yeah. and the set, the people are moving past him. The sets are moving past him. You can set up the back of the revolve with the next set and then spin it around. It was, it was brilliant. And I, I see that now from a theatrical and director's and actor's point of view. Sure. But at the time I was like, this is just cool. Was that the first show you'd seen on Broadway, or have you been going to Broadway for other stuff? I saw some other stuff. I remember seeing Cats. Didn't really click with it. It mm-hmm. was cool. Um, so it wasn't just the novelty of being on Broadway. You'd seen Broadway shows before. Yeah. Okay. I'm so you had points of comparison. Yeah, and none of them just blew me away. Did you see Starlight Express? I didn't. But you would think I would, because I was I was loving it at the time. I mean, that was I remember when that came out, what a big deal it was, <laughs> and then it like crashed and everything like that. Literally, like, I think. Yeah. It's coming back. Is it really? to London? Yeah, they're mounting a, a revival. That's hilarious! Yeah. Wow, wow. Um, I was going to go down memory lane, but that's that's neither here nor there. Um, so when you walked out of Les Mis, did you feel like gobsmacked? I mean, was yeah. it? What, what did it mean to you? What were your takeaways? I mean, did you start to internalize? Hey, what do I have to do to get there? Or what, what did you think? I not only internalized what do I need to do to get there. But I waited by the stage door, um, and this is actually this is several months afterward, and several times viewing it afterward. I waited by the stage door, and I asked the actors, "Do you do you teach voice?" 
does anyone here teach voice? I'm a, I'd like to learn how to sing like you do. Anybody? I was. You're right. I, I guess I was precocious. Holy shit! Uh, I'd like to think I was a go getter, but that was pretty precocious. No, that that's <laughs> it's all the above. <laughs> and did you get responses? Were people answering you? Yeah, they were like, "You go go talk to Ed Dixon," and he was playing the master of the house. And uh, Ed was like, "Yeah, sure. Let's we'll 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 we'll, we'll work with you." Like right there. Yeah. At the stage door. At the stage door. And then I, I later would, you know, I'd go to his apartment and, and he'd teach me how to sing. Wait, his apartment was where? In the city? Yeah, in the village. So you would come in from Clifton? Yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, it was a different time. And, and how old were you when you were doing this? Uh, probably, I think that probably my senior year of high school, maybe freshman okay. year of college. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. So senior year of high school... Independent of Les Mis, what did you think was the next step? Did you know automatically you were going to college? Was that a given? It was a given, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where did you go to it college? Was a, I went to Montclair State. Okay. And did you know it was going to be Montclair State, or were you shopping around? Were you like, hey, I want to possibly go out of state, or what were your aspirations not, with college? Not really. I, I knew that I was going to go to college and study theater, because it was pretty settled at that point. And you'd seen Les Mis? At yeah. That point. Yeah. Okay. So just for perspective, I was, Les Mis opened in 87. I graduated high school in 89. So okay. it was those. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. It was those two years that I, 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 I was blown away and bowled over and decided to change the course of my life. And then. And you've been taking voice class lessons then for those two years. It took about a year for me to get the guts to go to the stage door and ask the actors. Yeah. So you'd seen Les Mis multiple times. Oh yeah. I saw it. Maybe like four times in that in that first year, and it was on what the last one that you decided to go to the stage door and start asking. Believe it or not, I think I was there, and I actually, I don't think I know. It was a the 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 night I saw it, which was in October of eighty seven. Um, I got a poster and I waited by the stage door to get it signed. Okay, and it was raining, so they invited me in. Um, they, the actors or the, the stage doorman, yeah, the stage, stage doorman, he, he let me in. And so I, I still have this poster signed. Um, uh, so I, I was, and that's, and that's still a thing. In fact, I think it's gotten even bigger. The crowds at the stage doors nowadays yeah. seem huge. Yeah. So they I think are. that's still a thing, but I remember being one of like two people out in the rain. Wow. Uh, and, but I remember, wow. yeah, I remember getting a, getting but a that was not when you asked for voice lessons. No, it was probably a year later. In fact, Ed was the replacement on the, for the master of the house. So it was probably a year later. Okay. Uh, and was that planned? I mean, did you, were you, were you, I'm at this performance because afterwards I got to go backstage and try to link in with these people or, or was that spontaneous? Was that spur of the moment? No, it was, it, it was probably, probably planned. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I wanted, I didn't just want to learn how to sing. I wanted to sing like they did. You know, I, 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 I especially that original cast, I'd never heard people sing like that. And, wow. and, uh, that's, and, and if you hear me sing, it's, it's the way I'm singing now. Yeah, it is. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about Sentinels in a little bit, but yeah. yeah. Um, so when you're going to meet with Ed, what were you learning? What was the biggest takeaway that he he was teaching you? We would just start with a song. I remember there was, uh, he had some Pi and Elton John song. He had uh, a song called Just In Time. Just In Time, I Found You Just In Time. I think oh, we were trying yeah. to, yeah, 
we were trying, and he was, he's a writer as well. So even on the Elton John songs, he would change the words. He's like, sing these lyrics. It's a little better. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, uh, and so I think he was just trying to see if I, if I was able to find pitch and things like that. So we started off, you know, fairly crude. Um, at this point you'd had no training at all. No, I, no, I just sing in the shower, sing at home, you know, and you, I think people can't really tell if they themselves can sing. Cause if you're tone deaf, you don't know it. I mean, you in particular, but uh, no, right. Tone right, deaf right. singers yeah, yeah. often can't tell. So I did, I did want someone to kind of say, yeah, you have, you have something to work with here. Okay. Um, so I took lessons with him for about a year. Okay. Um, and then who did you go to next? Then I probably think I couldn't, I was at this point, I'm in, I'm in college. So I'm taking lessons from the teachers. Okay. So, um, I would go to Ed if I had an audition, um, that I wanted to work on a song or something like that. Um, Oh, so you still would see him for specific on a case on occasion. Yeah. Just okay. to work on a song or something. But, um, I mainly just started working with the, the teachers at Montclair state. So what was the difference in that experience working with them versus working with Ed? Did you notice a degradation in the, it was like, ah, they're okay, but it's not turning me on as much or they're not as good or there's some technical aspect that's different. I mean, what was that? Because that seems like that would be a, a bit of a, uh, you know, you were really inspired to go seek him out. Right. It was okay. In fact, I wasn't like a musical theater major mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't a voice major. So I, I didn't really have classes where voice was the focal point. It was sort of like acting for singers. Okay. Uh, Sure. I'm sorry. Um, Singing for actors. Yeah. 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 Um, So acting was, was, was the, the, the focal point at that point. Okay. You know, my, my degree is in acting and I studied acting and then I kind of worked on the musical theater just so I can get more parts. Why? Because it seems like Les Mis really, did a lot for you, but you didn't go, okay, I want to be part of the next lame, whatever the next lame is, <laughs> is I'm, I'm aiming for that. Why did you focus on straight acting more? Well, actually if Montclair offered a musical theater oh, okay. degree, possibly. Okay. But I also felt that voice wasn't, there were people, there were music majors who were studying voice as, as a, um, a degree. I just thought that wasn't well-rounded enough. Because interesting, wow, yeah, I, because I, I liked acting just as much, and looking back, I'm glad that I did because I, I think, you know, whether you're singing or you're or you're in a straight play, I think acting is basically the same set of skills. Sure, sure. What did you? What was turning you on though about acting? What was so enticing about that to you? Did you find playwrights that you were really gravitating towards? Yeah. Um, what I liked about it, I think, again, maybe, and this is this is actually a good psychotherapy session for me as well. <laughs> I might have to give you a copay. I charge double. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's possible now that I've kind of recognized the truth in being the the theater nerd in high school. It's possible that I liked the escapism. Yeah, I liked becoming someone else, and I liked getting out of my comfort zone uh, and getting up in front of people because it was, like I said, I was an introvert. 
I remember even in high school when you had to read your essay in front of the class. Here's the guy that went on to become the uh, actor-singer. My hands were shaking. I was nervous. I wanted to pass it off. I couldn't do it. I was ready to throw up. So it wasn't like I loved being in front of people. I I hated it, Um, which is interesting as to why I pursued it. And I think it was because I liked, A, the escape, because when you're... When you're reading your own essay in front of your class, I'm still Mike Devine, and and this is horrible. Right. But when I'm acting right. in front of a group of peers, I'm Eugene in Brighton Beach Memoirs, so I can do whatever whatever I want. That I I think that has plenty of precedent. I think that's a lot of people feel that way. That's um. What did that mean for you then? <laughs> it's funny. I always think one of the best things about acting is getting the chance to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and not have to pay any of the consequences, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. for you, um, who were the characters and the roles that you grab? Who were the most liberating for you? Actually, I just mentioned one, which is interesting. Was yeah. Okay. And, wow. and, and cause I remember especially freshman, uh, sophomore year, I remember doing a lot of Neil Simon, and huh. I, I really liked a lot of his stuff. And and that's such a great character, Eugene Morris Jerome, because he went on to three different plays, Biloxi sure. Blues and and Broadway Bound. But um, I was doing a lot of the stuff that was assigned to me, which took me further out of my comfort zone. Because when you're a theater major, Mike, you're going to read this scene from Equus. I'm like, Equus, oh, okay, never heard of that. Yeah. Or here's one from M. Butterfly. I'm like, oh, oh, this one's interesting. Okay. It, I rarely got to choose. Wow. Uh, yeah. And when I did, I, 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 maybe I've just forgotten so much of it. But it was a great way to spend at college because you were constantly, you were, you were doing plays for credit. So all of it was, you know, what was given to me this, this year we're doing these, these four plays. And that was my, my whole freshman year, these four plays. And the wow. next year it's these plays. And yeah. we're doing a small play in the studio theater. We're doing our big main stage musical. And again, I wanted to be in, in as, as much as I could. So I'm going to continue singing and polish my audition song for the main stage show. By the way, terrible dancer. I was I was as bad at dancing. You're only a as, double threat. You could not be the, the triple oh, threat. That's, yeah, that's why I became a cop. <laughs> that's my triple threat. But um, I, it also got me out of my comfort zone too because they they made you take a few things, and I I did a couple dancey shows, but very much against my will. Another probably another reason I like Les is because there's no dancing. It's true. A little bit of marching. That but, is true. Yeah. yeah. For um, I I kind of glossed this over, and I just want to make sure I'm clear in my mind. Obviously, you're going to college as an acting major. What was that conversation like with mom? How did the family receive it? Was it at all controversial? Did it make sense? Was everybody like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course it it did make sense. Okay. Yeah, right. it, it did. And thankfully, mom's always been entirely supportive. She okay. didn't always get it. Sure. But entirely supportive. So there was no okay. like, no, you're going to study business. Sure. There was, there was none of that. She's like, okay. So theoretically in your mind at this point, you're thinking I'm going to go here to Montclair state four years, be an acting major and then go to the city and start auditioning. Right. Yeah. That was, that was pretty much it. Okay. All right. And was there any kind of forward planning in your mind about, okay, based on all the stuff I've done, 
I've done my Peter Schaefer. I've done my Neil Simon. I've got all these different places, things I've been exposed to. Did you know where your sweet spot was? Was there anything where you're like, was there any sort of um, self-awareness of based on who I am, this is how I need to market myself. These are the kind of roles I would want to go for. Was that starting to develop the business sense of like, hey, what type am I? Hey, what kind of roles should I be going for? As much as I love Montclair State, mm-hmm. um, the emphasis was on the craft and very little was placed on marketing. In okay. fact, we did in, in my, if, thankfully my senior year, we had a semester where it was called the business of acting. It was mainly okay. aud- how to audition, okay. which was great. It was Frankie Faison. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. He, he taught it. He was great. Oh, that's cool. Wow. And he was very instrumental in my starting to approach acting from, I would call it like the Nike school of acting. Just do it. It the first few years, again, when you're looking about craft, it can get very pretentious. Yes. Yes. Um, and a little heady, and I got caught up in that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm walking through Jello, right? And while right. quoting Shakespeare, and and um, he was just sort of like, here, read these lines. No, stop acting. Just read them again. And okay, there you go. And a lot of that did come back later. But again, to answer your question, I wasn't. Probably, I don't even know what marketing was at the time. There was no. Yeah. What's the word? Branding. I know that's yeah, a big yeah. word now, but. No, I just kind of thought I would just. I remember falling in like the uh, the sort of the nerdy guy next door kind of thing. Okay. There was a little bit of that going on. Um, what, what was your pipe dream? Did you go? Hey, I just got to get to Broadway, or was it TV and film? It was both. I wanted to to do it all. Okay, um, TV and film seemed so distant. Yeah, even being in New York, I think especially being in New York. Yeah, Broadway seems like. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's there's a path here. TV and film. It's like, oh yeah, there's some place out in Queens you can go, and there's sound stages, and then it's L.A. It's like, okay, yeah. That's my perception of it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, so much that we did was on stage. Um, in fact, I really wish if I was running the program, there would have been more uh, acting for film and TV. Mm. Um, and some people will say, oh, it's the same, but it's it's really not. No, yeah adjusting even in film you're adjusting the size of your performance for the 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 um depth of the camera angle so it, it's it's definitely not the same in fact we may still get into this but when i was started auditioning for film and tv i was very big oh yeah i would play to the size of the room of and it took me a long time to to get that so looking back i i but again i was a theater major so you're studying theater yeah. um but i i i wish they they expanded a bit because and and that's Although I'd love to do movies and TV, thinking thinking back, theater was probably the the obvious choice. Um, were you making friends? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Did you find a community? Oh my God. In fact, I just had a little college reunion last weekend. Wow. The same people from thirty years ago. Wow. I had them all up at the house and, and had an afternoon there and uh, brought out the the photo albums and it was it's a great way to spend four years of college and sort of a school within a school because. Sure. And we went to every class together. We did the plays together. You're up till midnight together. And and then yeah. in some cases living together. So it was, we got very, very, very tight. And we were sort of the, the misfits from high school that we found each other. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So after college, you graduate, <laughs> is there, are you still, 
high as a kite going, yep, going into the city to be an actor? Or was there a quick gut check of like, holy shit, all right, uh, am I ready to do this? Or what was that like for you? <laughs> I'm going to be an actor. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, senior year, everybody was doing Our Town, and, and uh, <laughs> I had a friend that got me a job. Um, he's like, the Marquee Theater on Broadway is looking for someone to assist the house manager. And uh, I'm like, well, yeah, okay. It's not what I studied. It's not really my intention, but hey, a job on Broadway. It's in the business. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I took that and uh, I kind of, I was already setting my sights on graduation and I kind of left all that behind. I left all the, the stuff in school behind. And uh, I was probably the only one assisting the house manager that spent more time backstage. <laughs> I'm like, again, who's this? I say, oh, this precocious young lad. I would have been like, who's this jerk? What does he do here? Who even is he? Um, but well, stands a moment, the assistant to the traveling secretary, but you're helping Tartable out with his swing in the locker room. Son of a, what the hell's happening? Yeah. So funny. I wish I could have told young Mike to just relax a bit, but it was. Uh, what were you doing backstage? Were it was. Well, the, the, actors the sh- or what were we doing? I was kind of harassing them, but it was the. Not not real. I don't I don't like to think I was, but um it was the goodbye girl with Martin Short and Bernadette Peters. Oh, so my this Lord. were ninety three-ish. Okay. Um but I I couldn't just be the assistant to the house manager. I had to you know start bringing the VIPs backstage. And then I'm, I would let me hang out a little bit backstage. And then I started to get to know everybody. Oh, and oh, you guys have a bowling team? I should join your bowling team. So I'm now, you know bowling at the Port Authority after the shows with the guys. And then I was, nobody even knew what I did there. <laughs> and interesting, the way the, the way the Marquee Theater is set up, the box office connects, the box office on the street, but it connects through backstage. Okay. You can either go out or, or you can go backstage. In fact, I would often run into Martin Short, who was making his entrance below the stage as I was leaving oh, the box so office. Funny. So uh, instead of leaving and going into the theater, I would just go back backstage. And uh, before I knew it, I was saying, like meeting the stage manager and the company manager. I'm like, what does a company manager do? I remember Dana Sherman. She's like, why don't you trail me and I'll show you what a company manager does. Wow. Um, yeah. So before so much I, for being an introvert, by the way. You know, that's interesting. You're right. Uh I say I'm an introvert and I, maybe I've just become more so over the years or maybe I was just among my people. You just felt at home. Yeah, I did. Yeah. In fact, even God, um, the, they had the Broadway show league, the softball yeah. league. Yeah. And I remember going there to watch and Les Miserables had their team and all the Broadway shows had their team and you had, you actually had big celebrities playing softball. Yeah, sure. And uh, I'm like, I can't. Play. I'm not on the team, but I'm like, hey, you need a you need a scorekeeper. And I, I'd be like, you know, stargazing while you know runs were coming in. I'd forget to record. But uh, I remember being so nervous. The guy's name he was in Lamez Rob. Jordan. I don't I don't want to make this the Lamez Rob podcast. But, no, it's all right. No, but it's good. Jordan Leeds was an actor in the show, and I was so nervous. And I'm like, I walked up to him and I go, Hi, I'm Jordan. I'm like, uh, and thinking to myself, you idiot. That's his name. And I didn't want to say anything, so they called me Jordan. <laughs> you couldn't correct him. That's all. That's that's like half. 
I don't know what that is. It's like half SpongeBob, half Kirby enthusiasm. Oh. That's really funny. It's, That's a great sketch. It's so true. And they called me Jordan for like oh my god weeks while I was uh, I was <laughs> I was keeping score that I knew nothing about. <laughs> That's hilarious. By the way, what would, that, that had to have been a little surrealistic being the person you appeared to be at that time to suddenly be around the actual cast of Les Mis on something of a peer-to-peer level. Yeah. I mean, was that mind-blowing? Were you like, hey, I'm, I'm just about there. I'm, I'm, I'm right here. I'm hobnobbing with all these It was folks. mind-blowing. It, it really was. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm kind of glad that I had that in me because, as you'll know in a second, it led to other things. But I remember there was a show called Aspects of Love, which had Michael Ball, who was the original Marius, and a couple other people. And I was just hanging out with, I don't know if I was being their scorekeeper. I eventually, I think I learned how to keep score. But I was just hanging out with them. And 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 Michael and a whole bunch of them were like, okay, we're going to go out for lunch now. And I think I actually said, mind if I come? Wow. <laughs> Boy, when you're young and you just don't know it better, and people give you the grace. I guess. So often. And I have you know? a very... Uh, you know, I look you like, can't do that at our age. You can't go. You can't go do that now. People are like, "You're a fucking creep." You hey, know, girls, you, you mind you, if I? <laughs> seriously, yeah, yeah. If my if I ride on the subway is any indication, you can't do that anymore. But but it's definitely <laughs> but definitely like yeah. And, and when you're young and you're coming out of school, and it's clear that you're starry eyed. People do tolerate that. Yeah, you know, in some weird ways. Yeah. And I'm having lunch now with Michael Ball, and it was at Lincoln Center. Uh, and, and I'm like, who am I? Why did I, how, how do I even fit in? And again, it was same, same, wow. I, it could be creepy, but you're right. I, I think I had this you know, very approachable, thankfully personality, but looking back, I really hope I kept it in check. I hope I wasn't just, you know, uh, trying to force myself into, into their lives. But did you, was there, I mean, I, I would totally understand if it was simply just, starry-eyed but was there ulterior modes where you're like hey maybe they'll ask me to be in a show or something like were you thinking there was some career aspiration or was just the was that, that i wasn't thankfully that yeah that conniving i wasn't uh um you know there was it was more like i just want to be their friends i want to hang out with them i want to wow yeah wow uh, um but what interestingly with the goodbye girl um, that actually that that was closing because I, th- I think when the two leads were leaving, um, so I, I the uh, station, the, sorry, the house manager at the time, the guy who I was assisting, he's like, you know, I I have this internship that if you if you'd like, you can work in her office. She's looking for people, and this was continued in the same vein. She was a general manager, Charlotte Wilcox. So I I'm like, yeah, I'll take a, an internship. That'd be great. And then before I knew it. They hired me, and I was now, um, you know, kind of ingrained in the world of general management. Um, and then that led to uh, to Cameron McIntosh's office, and and okay. and, and uh, a couple other offices too. So, at any point, was this altering how you were viewing yourself and your career potential? Yeah, it was. was it? As, as yeah. much as I wanted to be on the stage. I also thought it was a more sensible approach to theater mm. because you generally work for a company and then when the show closes, they sign you to the next show. Whereas if you're in the show, right. eh, you, you, then you start from scratch again right. and, and, and auditioning again. So I did start to think that, okay, maybe this is more sensible, but it wasn't that rewarding. It was just okay. 
and uh, and there were some incredible opportunities. Again, it, a lot happened fast. Um, uh, I highly recommend interning for for anybody that can afford to, uh, you know, work for fifty dollars a, a month or whatever it was. Um, but you become indispensable, and and you really become part of it. And then when they're looking to hire, they eventually will. Mike's a good guy. He's doing a good job. He's here. Yeah. He's yeah. already got a yeah. desk. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, that really helped me. Um, Would you recommend that for actors to learn other aspects of the business? Do you think that's helpful? I want to say almost no, because uh, unless you're looking to get away from acting. Because if mm. you're an intern, say, in, in a producer's office, you're – they kind of don't want you if you're, if they know you're eventually going to be an actor. And if you're worse, if you're saying a casting director's office, oh, you're, yeah. you're, yeah. it's a conflict of interest. I, I kind of don't, which is why I didn't want to say I gave up on acting, but I really kind of put it on hold um, because I was kind of enjoying it. And the, the pay was actually starting to, to be pretty good and it was steady. And I was, you know, probably 22, 23 at the time. And you said you took a $100,000 a year pay cut? Oh, well, eventually, yeah. Um, and you're, that's at 26? At 26, I was... Well, because you're on tour, you're making per diem as well. Sure. So I remember I was making a th- over 1000 a week untaxed in addition to my salary. Fuck. Yeah. Wow. And wow. Uh, it was interesting. I had to... Becoming an NYPD cop, I had so many tests to take, but I'm out on tour. So I would like go to take my psych test coming in from East Lansing, Michigan. or right, um, right. I remember one guy saying, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. I came in from Brooklyn. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I came in from Boston. <laughs> well, and this is before there was any online right. aspects, right? So you're physically having to drag your ass back to the city every time you have to do something, right? Yeah. Okay, so do you think, had you been acting, had had the connections you were making gone in the creative route as opposed to the management route. Would you, would the thought even to have become a cop have percolated or would that never have materialized? It's a good question. I think it, it would have to be, I'd have to examine just money's great. And I see all these people settling jobs for the money, but I, I money's always been kind of like, it's nice. It's nice to have enough, mm-hmm. but I'm always looking for this, itch to scratch this the satisfaction i want to love what i do i want to i i want to work and play at the same time and i i, I don't yeah. want to go to work i want yeah. that you know it's a cliche but um so if the acting was if i found it was fulfilling which i looking back it would very very unlikely that it would be it's a very very as you know of course it's it's a very difficult first profession yeah um and I would think just when it becomes fulfilling, it's taken away, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I had the wherewithal to understand that at the time. Um, and I was doing so well in management that I didn't want to tell people I was an actor. You know, yeah, and there's so many people in yeah. that business that started out as acting and then they went into casting or management. Yeah. Um, but, you know, especially like with tour with Miss Saigon, I really wanted badly to be on that stage. Um, wow. But I don't even, I don't think I even mentioned to some of them, some of the actors that, uh, you know, I was, I was an actor too, 
But no, it's just you don't get then you don't get taken you don't get taken seriously. I know. Yeah, so I was quiet about that. So it's fair to say that probably the idea to become a cop then is rooted in the fact that some deep desire that really had driven you into show business was no longer being addressed. Is that fair to say? I always told the story is I looked back and it was un I was unfulfilled. Yeah. And then I used to joke that, oh, providing entertainment for rich folks is unfulfilling. But it can be. Totally. Rich folks or otherwise, it's it's can be very fulfilling. Um, so I kind of changed that tune. But there was, I was also very overworked. And I think it, it clouded my judgment to a degree. Because when you're on tour, we were grateful that it wasn't one week. We'd play a month in a city. But... I got two days off a month because on the, you would travel on our days off in the front and back end. Um, And I I had a great, great boss, but he was a workaholic. So I had to be, I was at the theater for maybe 14 hours a day. Yeah. And I think I burned out. So I think it might've clouded my judgment and I'm kind of grateful that it did, but I was really burned out by it. Um, So I was ready for uh, a break what was the first step you took to become a cop? What did they have back then? It was, it was, a, you have to show up to a recruiting session, like seminar or something. What was the steps? Do you remember? Well, I was the auxiliary for a bit. So I, I, oh, yeah. So w- yeah. when did that happen? How, how, yeah. I remember that being a, maybe I went out on tour in 97 with, with Miss Saigon. And I remember, as I said, I, they sent me to Charlotte or Pittsburgh. I forget what the first city was, but I had to come back for my graduation from the auxiliary. And I would literally do my auxiliary time by, by driving or flying back to put in, you know, eight hours. And then I'd go back out on tour, but that wasn't the plan. I, in fact, they, I didn't see uh, Miss Saigon coming. They were just like, Hey, want to do it? I'm like, Sure. Like, wait a minute, I got a few other things. I just be, I'm about to become an auxiliary. And I thought that would be a nice way to test the waters, to kind of see sure. the NYPD from the inside. And So what were you doing when you applied to be an auxiliary? What was your actual money-making job at that point? I was still, I was in- Were you in, with Cameron McIntosh? I was, you? yeah. I was okay. in the office. Right. Okay. Yeah, I was working in the so office. So you're just New York-based working in the office? Yeah. I worked okay. for maybe three different management offices, the last okay. being Cameron's office. Okay. Um, but so, you weren't going out on the road. In no. other words, okay, so you had planned that. So, okay, so now I got it. So the auxiliary happens. What was it like then on that first auxiliary assignment? Did you, I, I can't even imagine the different feelings that could possibly emerge where it's like walking in my dad's shoes a little bit. Yeah. Totally different experience, totally different way of relating to people. Suddenly I'm not in a, you know, a management position. I'm now this rookie auxiliary cop. Oh, you're looking yeah. at a parade or something like. I mean, what what was it like? And was it was it thrilling? Was it? Did you get a shot of adrenaline, or was it? You know, kind of. Jesus, this is cognitive dissonance. <laughs> I'm like on streets I know as a civilian, and now I'm yeah. standing here as a cop. Like, what, 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 do you remember any of the takeaways from that? Oh, I haven't really thought about this in a very long time. But it was. I remember thinking just how cool this is. Mm. Um, I. I liked wearing the uniform and I liked being 
like it's a license to talk to anybody. Like I can stand uh, on the corner. Again, it's, it is it 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 it's antithetical to my claiming to be this introvert. But it could also it's being a role. It's stepping out of myself. Um. So that 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 could have been an aspect of it as well. But it did it did give me license to be somebody else. In fact, I felt like like a foot taller. And I'm an average size guy, but I I felt taller, and I I just felt um. Like, you know, I'm like an overgrown Boy Scout. Huh. Like I'm, I'm like, and I'm looking for like, where's the old lady to to walk across the street? And I'm like, we're I'm constantly looking for that. Um, and and I'm sorry I, I, to jump so far ahead, but through I did 22 years in the NYPD, and it never changed. And I felt as much as these feelings people have toward cops, I only saw overgrown Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. That's all I saw. Maybe it's my tunnel vision or, you know, the way I was raised, but it was just day to day looking for the next right thing to do. It's interesting that you keep coming back to, God, I sound like an amateur psychiatrist again, but it's funny <laughs> that you keep coming back to looking for the old lady to help across the street. Um, as opposed to looking for the next bad guy to punch in the mouth or looking for yeah. the next it's it's but there was a sense of that sense of service that sense of being of aid to others yeah that seems like a um and don't even I'm all for punching bad guys in the mouth but that that does seem like a very positive yeah and I don't necessarily I mean you know it's it's just um it's not a negative deteriorating weight that you're carrying that does kind of free one up make you less self-conscious, turn you outwards, you know, like right. there's, there's a lot of, a lot to be said for that. Right. You know, it's a different noble quality. Right. Then I think what a lot of people would ascribe or maybe even a lot of people feel potentially when joining the police force. Yeah. Um, interesting. And I, I kind of quoted him earlier and I'm, I'm drawing a blank at his name. There was, a writer, there's a, a detective in the NYPD, and he's going to kill me because I actually worked with him for a short period. But he used to write anonymously for the New Yorker, I believe. Huh. And I remember being in Pittsburgh with Miss Saigon when I read an article that he had written. And God, I, I didn't want to steal his quote earlier as to why I became a cop, but he wrote that his standing on a corner in uniform. And seeing a, uh, an old lady walk by him, his just being there was proof that no one's going to mess with her on her walk home. Mm. Those are his words, uh, almost to a T, because it stuck with me forever. I kind of changed it around a bit because I didn't want to steal his quote. <laughs> and oh, he's going to kill me for not knowing his name. We, he wrote we can, Blue Bloods. Oh, okay. We can we can find that out. It'll be in the show notes. We'll credit okay. him accordingly. Um, but I remember being in Pittsburgh, and. Looking at that, saying uh, that's kind of pointing me in a new in a new direction because I loved that perspective. Um, just my existence, standing there in a uniform, is proof that no one's going to mess with her on her walk home. I just thought that was great, and that's. It's funny. Later, I did <clears throat> undercover work in uh, in narcotics, and I, I was. Working with God, it's all meshes together. I was work, my sergeant at the time was um, Connor McCourt, who is uh, Malachi's son. You got to be kidding! It's crazy, right? Wow! And Frank's nephew, 
Wow. Yeah. So he was my sergeant. And we would sit like three in the morning, be sitting in a in a dump of a car, not in uniform. And he would see someone, you know, a frail looking old lady, old man walking home. And he's like, let's be her guardian angel. And uh, wow. she wouldn't, and this person would not know they it. They never know it. They yeah. never know it. But he would turn to me, let's be her guardian angel. So we would almost maybe follow her to make, make sure she gets to her door correctly, um, safely. Um so that's why I say these are these are overgrown Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. That's really moving. And very, that very really true. Is, I never shared that know. story until the past few years when when uh you know there was uh, people were looking at cops as as so much of the enemy. I'm like, yeah, it's really not. Yeah. This is this yeah. this is the reality. Yeah. That was part one of Michael Devine's profile in Havoc. Uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it yet because you guys should hear part two before I give all my thoughts, but um, hopefully that whetted your appetite for next week's episode. Okay, we started off this episode by thanking our first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. Now I want to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, my own nonprofit, Veterans Repertory theater vet rep veterans repertory theater is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that exists to give a platform to veterans military law enforcement fire ems intelligence services foreign service dod employees and contractors and their immediate family members we give them current or former a platform to create compelling live theater, and events. Everything you should know about VetRep, you can find out at vetrep.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. When you're there, the best thing to do to find out everything we have going on is to scroll down and subscribe to our blog. You can subscribe for free, um, and that means every day in your email inbox, you will receive a little blurb of veteran writing, poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs. I will, however, footstomp one particular thing we're doing, which we're incredibly excited about. Uh, we are bringing our Savage Wonderground immersive art shows to Boston on Halloween, one night only, at an undisclosed private location that we will tell you about when you are SVP. It is half a block from the Boston Commons, right in smack in the heart of downtown Boston. This Savage Wonderground show is called Ghost Story. It is featuring a guest we've had actually on this show before, Nicholas F. Stathew, the writer of Cross, Massachusetts. Also, God, these are all people that have been on this show. Amy Sexauer, Dex, Iman Caffell, Dave Camposano, and we can't do a New England show without Benjamin Fortier, who has been twice one of our only, I think, two-time guests on Profiles and Havoc. They are all coming together. It is going to be a one-hour, explosive, moving, touching, shocking, horrifying Halloween-themed party. The show itself is only one hour, and it's going to be multimedia. We'll have music, live painting. I bet many of you didn't know Dex was an accomplished artist, and she will be doing live painting. 
We'll have poetry, storytelling, but the whole theme of it is ghost story, and it's based on Nick's work across Massachusetts, and if you know his work there, it's so much great horror content, but we weave it in with these tender and deeply personal and moving poems from Amy, from Ben, from Iman, everybody else um, that runs the gamut from innocence lost to failed relationships, unrequited love, motherhood, all these different themes. And we juxtapose them with the horror stories. So there's kind of, so you kind of get the sense of the emotional backbone behind some of these horrific images and horrific thrilling scenes. And what it does is it kind of transcends, I think, the genre of horror. It makes it, it gives you a deeper appreciation for horror because it's not just voyeuristic. It's not adolescent. It's not sophomoric. There's, you know, there's these shocking, jarring stories that Nick tells. And then it's interwoven with these, with such a different vibe um, that I think it really is uh, incredibly moving. Evening. And we're keeping it to only an hour. But then, because the location is awesome and because we've got such great talent arrayed there, we're going to keep the party going until 10 because right after that show, we will have uh, Second Mission Foundation will actually be launching, formally launching. The book is already out there, but for doing an actual book launch party for Iman Cafell's book, The Resolute Path. And um, we'll be there. Uh, it's, I, I should just mention, it's going to be an open bar and we're going to finger foods. It's badass. This location is so freaking cool. I, I, you guys got RSVP just to find out the location. But here's the thing. There are very few tickets. As you guys know, we love intimate shows. We don't try to do big shows. We really believe that you know smaller audiences are better. So there's not that many tickets available. The flip side of that is the tickets are free. Of course, we're going to hit you up for donations when you're there because it's an expensive evening to put on. But, you know, we're going to New England. It's a book launch. It's a great Halloween party um, with some very cool veteran artists. Um, So we want the right people, the curated audience to be there. So all you have to do is go to vetrep.org. You will see on our website the show. The Savage Wonderground Boston show. So when you're scrolling down the homepage, you will see the option to RSVP to the show. Just click the button. Just follow all the links. It will take you directly to where you need to go. There's a Google form that you can uh, fill out and send to us uh, automatically. And um, that's the easiest way to RSVP. Uh, If you're completely befuddled, you can always email us or call us at our contact info. But, uh, but the Google form is set up for you to reach out and secure your tickets now. It From a wild and very different date night to just an unforgettable adventure. This is going to be your Halloween. Or, you know, this is going to be something that you're not going to forget. So if you're in the New England area, come on down. Come on down to downtown Boston. Hang out with us. We've got plenty of parking. Yeah, plenty of parking, open bar, finger foods. Oh, I should mention there was one other key detail. There is a dress code 
for this show. That's right. Because of the location, which again, you're not going to know what the location is. We're not going to tell you until you RSVP. Um, you are going to be required to wear business attire or a jacket. If so, ladies, business attire, men, jackets, or you have to wear a costume. It's Halloween, and it's a classy Halloween, and it's an exclusive event. Everybody always talks about having inclusive events. This is an exclusive event. I mean, it's exclusive to the first few people that can get tickets, but nonetheless, uh, we're dressing up. We're putting the swank on, and it's going to be fun. So come on out. It's going to be a blast. Go to vetrep.org. Get your tickets. And uh, can't wait to see you there. First time doing something officially for Vet Rep in Boston. And um, obviously, there's just so many great veteran artists there. It's a great excuse to be there. Okay. So hopefully, we see you in Boston. I don't think there's anything else I want to push right now. But again, if you're subscribed to the blog, you'll know about everything we're doing and you'll be able to jump on that uh, as you see fit. Okay, I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal, for putting this together before, I should say, just before he gets married and goes on his honeymoon. So congrats, Mike. It's been a wild couple of years that we've been doing this, and uh, thanks for putting all this together every week, no matter what's going on in all of our lives. Um, Anyway, a a well-deserved um, break for him and, uh, and congrats on the wedding and the honeymoon. Okay. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal. We'll see you next time for Mike Devine's second installation of his profile in Havoc. 